0: chapter 3, verse 14, and uh, let's read it, and then I'll catch you up real quick on what we've covered so far, and uh, we'll dig into this one more time, and uh, hopefully we'll not vow a rash vow in saying this will be the last message in Colossians, chapter 3, verse 14. Pick it up in verse 12, put on then is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Let's pray. Dearest Lord Jesus and our great and good Father in heaven, may these words be true in our lives, in our church. May we feel the weight of their command and may we enjoy the blessing of their obedience and our love together. Thank you that as we put these on, we display Christ in his glory, the one who has redeemed us and loved us and shed His blood, and canceled the record of debt against us on that blessed hill where He endured the fullness of suffering, the fullness of Your wrath upon Himself in our place, our substitute, our Lamb of sacrifice. We praise You, Lord Jesus, for Your work on our behalf, and we thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for that You held these virtues, in great perfection, now and in your life on earth, and that we look to you and we seek your help, that they might be ours to display your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're new, you've been away sick, let me catch us up quickly. Part one was uh, what love isn't, really. And um, a lot of ideas about love out there, and we kind of broke down. So we said things like, love is not only emotion. It's not only emotion. It is emotion because we love one another with brotherly affection. And uh, God in heaven has great affection for his children. It's like, you fathers have great affection for your children. Then we share this affection as brothers and sisters. You have affection for your family. And so love's not only emotion, but it certainly contains it. Um, Love's not only action. Um, It's not only action, though it is certainly action. It is certainly um, the work of valuing someone else and uh, considering them and sacrificing for them and serving them and getting your hands dirty in life and time and everything involved in doing so. Um It certainly is, but it's not only action, um, because if that's all it is, then we miss the beauty that affection is for one another. It's certainly also not just romantic passion. You know, I said this like every you know song ever written. It's defined merely by romantic passion. It certainly would contain this within marriage, but it's not only that it's also not complete acceptance of someone in their sin, right? This is how the world wants us to define love, is you love me only if you completely accept every single thing about me um, without consideration at all for anything. And that certainly can't be what love is. That's just uh, seeking to force lawlessness upon us. And love fulfills the whole law. Law is not Love is not lawless. It's also... Uh, love is not an expectation upon other people that they will never sin against you. you know, that's just not it. the context in Colossians, remember? It assumes we sin against each other. If anyone has a complaint against another, bearing with one another, you must forgive. You know, It's not like, well, you know, someday, maybe, if you can ever get around to it, you must forgive. You must. You know? And I don't know why you would be resistant to granting forgiveness and in restoring intimacy and the, the blessing that relationship is, um, except you just want to hang on to your own pride. You must forgive. But love is not never being sinned against. And then um, that was a lot of the substance of the first week. And the second week was lined, love binds together in perfect harmony. It binds together in perfect harmony and um, love above all the others. It's both the source of all of these virtues and the supreme virtue above all these things. You can't have kindness and compassion and patience and forgiveness without love. But there's one virtue that stands supreme and reigns over all, and it also is love. And this kind of love binds everything together in perfect harmony. Of course, the love of God in the book of Colossians. By the way, if you just need to get your eyes on Christ and you don't know where to turn in your Bible, just read the book of Colossians and read it once a day for a month or read just spend a month in the book of Colossians and look upon Christ and look upon the redeeming, reconciling love of Jesus Christ in paying the debt that we owe in our sin to God and canceling the record entirely. I would encourage that to you, but... Um, Love binds together in perfect harmony and unity. And my argument last week was that love and truth go together because one of the ways that that harmony gets broken, unity gets broken, the sweet blessing that it is when brothers dwell together in unity gets broken is when we start to have this discussion about love and truth. And truth divides. You know, truth divides. And truth does divide. Amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusive it's exclusive. It is good news to, that is received by all who believe it. And all who reject it do not partake of its blessing. Right? Truth does divide. And so we start to have this discussion about um, love and truth. And in a, in, a, in a church like ours where we actually really care about sound doctrine and we're growing up in maturity with how to believe what's true and how to carry ourselves in a way that believes what's true, How to fight the good fight of faith and then also how to shut up, you know, (laughs) both (laughs) in the right time and right way. Um, My argument was love and truth go together, right? So we don't sell out on love to hold to the truth, right? And we don't sell out to the truth so that we can be known by our love. We don't do either one of those things. Love and truth go together. Love rejoices with the truth. Right? Love is the fulfillment of the whole law, of all of God's truth, Romans 13:8. So they go together. And I mean, I, I said, in the Godhead, in the, in the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there is perfect agreement about all that is love and all that is true. In the garden. When man was created before the fall, there was perfect agreement on what was love and what was true in God's world and about God himself and his ways. And then the fall of man happens. And we don't see uh, a perfect agreement on the nature of love and on truth in any way, shape or form in this life until the new creation i shouldn 't say in any way, shape or form, but you understand what I mean i 'm just this is a fallen world we don 't see love and truth in perfect accord here, and that 's important for you to know. But in the new creation, all of us together, in a, a paradise greater than Eden, you understand greater than Eden, the new creation is we 're not just going back to the garden we 're redeemed to something greater than that, which is amazing because Adam. Was born sinless. We are born sinners, and so redeemed the place that Jesus is taking us by His grace. Does it even have any potential for sin? Like Eden did. It's just unimaginable grace. Just think on that this week. You'll be happier. <laughs> yeah. And so my point, though, is we live between those realities. We live between those realities. We live between those realities in a sin-cursed world. We are all cursed of sin. you know we are putting you know to death this body of death. Uh, we are striving to understand God's words and his truth. We are gaining and grasping a little bit more at a time, day by day, you know um, But these two passages of scripture and the, and the one we're in as well, but these two passages of scripture assume that we have issues. They assume it. When Ephesians 4.3 commands us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, then we know that in our hearts, division and schism are close at hand. We know that there's something wrong that we have to strive for this peace, that brings about the unity by God's Spirit. We also then read in Ephesians 4.15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Just the need to speak the truth in love to one another so that the body is built up in love and the truth that we're speaking to one another to become more loving. (laughs) You understand? Love and truth grow up together. But the fact that we have to do that as a body tells us that we're not there yet. It tells us that there is work to be done, but it assumes underneath all of that that um, there will be tremendous difficulty in this life and tremendous difficulty in uh, our love failures, and tremendous difficulty in the way we live that needs corrected in order to come into the image of Christ, and tremendous difficulty in, I mean, how hard is it just to speak the truth and love to one another? I mean, just think about how hard that is. You know, it's like, i got to have this conversation. My palms are sweaty, and I'm all nervous. You know? I'm less like that. And it, should just, it, it, it shouldn't have to be such a, you know, it should, shouldn't just have to be such a thing. It just shouldn't be. shouldn't have to be. So we maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We speak the truth in love. We live between Eden and the fall and, it's, and the new creation. And here's the thing that I, I think is really important for us who hold truth very, very dear. And hold sound doctrine very, very, very dear. And hold our principles very, very, very dear. You ain't going to fix everything before the new creation. You ain't going to fix it all. You ain't going to get me to stop saying ain't. But you ain't going to fix it all. Just not. You just not. And I I was trying to plead with some of our young men last night, or yesterday morning, um, to not just hold principles, but to love people. And we must hold our principles, we must not compromise Scripture. But you must also love people. And the love of people while you hold your principles doesn't mean that you, you your most immediate reaction is to conform them to all of your principles. Above all these things, make sure that the first thing you do is to conform everyone to all of your principles. That's not what the Scripture says, is it? But you're not going to fix it all, because if you're thinking about people, think about Sister Jane. She grew up in a broken home. Her dad was extremely severe. He was cold to her and hardly shows any kindness at all. Not any time that she remembers You' gonna get me out of this disaster of fighting the sun. Let's see if this works. It's brilliant. Just like walked into a shadow right here, behind the light and the fan up there, or something. I don't know. I always trust Carl. Sister Jane grows up, and in, in, in her dad's overly severe. Never shows any kindness. Of course, never really knowing the good human love of a good father, of course, is terrified um, that any benevolent love or benevolent father exists at all, constantly doubts that anyone ever has any love for her. It doesn't matter how much people seek to show and communicate their love to her. There's a difficulty there that is... That may not be overcome in all of this life. To believe. And there's a weakness there because of the entire background of her life that may not be entirely overcome. And all of you who hold your principles say, well, if she would just do X and Y and Z. And I'm just like, just shut up. Why don't you be helpful? Why don't you be sweet and kind? Why don't you be compassionate and encouraging and affirming? We can't always fix it all. You know? And honestly, every one of us have a long list of things like that. Either from our sin nature or our experience or some kind of weakness because of our experience and failed background. All of us have a list of things that we're not here to fix all of it. And if you think that's really what growing up in truth and love is, and that's how you function, I mean, your marriage is going to be terrible. You have to come to grips. And if you're not married here, I hope every time I speak of marriage, you think when I'm married, I better heed that. Because you need this before you're married. Trust me. The quicker in your marriage you can get to the place where your goal isn't to just change your spouse into your image what they think you need to be, the better things will go. The better things will go. Well, they're sinning. Yeah, and you're sinning in response to their sinning. So now what do we do? (laughs) You know? sinning. I need to fix it now. No, you don't. No, you probably don't. You might want to be helpful. Probably don't need to fix that right now. Isn't it shocking to hear me saying these things? Because you think that's how I function, but it's not how I function at all. You know? It's one of the bummers of, you know, the reason that you think that about me is because in our culture, in our Christian culture today, the only pastoral care we have received is from preaching. And the only help we've ever, in in preaching, right, you have reprove, rebuke, exhort, which means every sermon should have reproof, rebuke, and exhort in it of some kind with complete patience and instruction. I have no illusion that when I'm preaching that everything's going to be fixed just after I've said it. But the problem is, is you put too much pressure on preaching because most of what you have understood about the whole nature of pastoral care and sanctification merely comes from hearing preaching. And so you think, because I'm telling you, you must forgive, and you must forgive, you know. And I'm going to hold the line on that in preaching like if we're sitting and having a conversation in your living room, and we're working through the pain of being sinned against, that's a whole different discussion than just you must forgive right now. And so the difference between holding your principle and loving people, Okay? Pastor Josh's father died from alcoholism and a broken heart when he was 44. Pastor Josh's grandfather died at 52 in a single car accident, and he was a heavy drinker on my dad's same side. Pastor Josh comes from multiple generations of men who escaped responsibility with the bottle. Life was easier for them when they could escape the responsibility of reality and of manhood. Manhood. So Pastor Josh, though redeemed and having been given the grace of God, carries more, now by the grace of God, carries more responsibility than both of them, but is always going to battle a hatred of carrying responsibility and a longing to let it go for just an easier life. And that's not all going to get fixed before the new creation. And you're going to suffer for my sins. All suffer for years and we'll do it together, okay? Because we'll bear with one another. We'll bear with one another in love. Because we recognize that not everything's going to get fixed. The Holy Spirit sanctifies. The power of God glorifies. To realize you have no part when your spouse gets the glorification done. You realize you don't do any of that. You realize you don't really do anything ultimately in even helping your spouse in their sanctification. It is all the work of the Holy Spirit of God and the grace of God and you should receive and consider yourself worthy of no glory for it. You see, all of this requires having faith in, the, in who God is and what God's doing. Of course, the Holy Spirit uses us in speaking the truth in love and growing up into a place where increasingly love and truth do go together. I want as much of that, this side of the new creation as we can have. But I recognize at the same time that doesn't mean everything's going to get fixed. We have to realize that we're going to go to Jesus mixed up, some more mixed up than others. And it's important that our love recognizes this. It's really important that our love recognizes this. So, now, I'm spending a lot of time on the ethical reality, just kind of helping us to have a humbler view of this life before the new creation. But when we think about love that binds everything together in perfect harmony, what are the kinds of things that, um, what kinds of disagreements that could threaten harmony, but what are the kinds of disagreements within this church family? I'm only talking today about this church family. I'm not talking about our relationship with other churches outside. These are those, that's a different category of discussion. It has overlap, but that's not what I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about how do we relate together? What disagreements can we love our brothers and sisters through in this church family? And what issues must we divide over? What must we divide over? And when is division actually the sin of schism? When is it actually schism rather than the proper kind of division? And so I want to try to flush this out just a little bit more. I want to define schism. Schism is creating a division between brothers and sisters when there should be unity. Schism is creating division between brothers and sisters in Christ when there should be unity. It can be as simple as complaining about something in the church or complaining to somebody else about someone in the church or some thing that happened or some weakness that the church possesses or some some failure it could be that there's actually sin could be that we're actually sinners and you're complaining about our sin it could be as simple as that that divides our hearts from one another that's schism You know, And I just want to encourage you, if you have a problem with someone in the church, go to your brother or sister and you talk to them about it. You talk to them about it. And see if you can't be reconciled. You don't go be gossiping and slandering around and harming everyone else. It's your burden to bear, not theirs. Your love is to protect from schism, not be the cause of it. So schism is born of lovelessness. It's what tears down unity and tears down harmony. And it's born of lovelessness, whereas love actually binds everything together in perfect harmony. So there's two kinds. I, wanna, I do want to read uh, quickly in First Corinthians, just two verses. You don't need to turn there. But First um, Corinthians chapter 11, this is in the context of First Corinthians and their issues and, and the Lord's table, actually. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And then he goes on to say, he says, I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among, uh, among you may be recognized. So he says, there are divisions among you, and they're the kind of divisions that um, both ought not to be approved, and then there are some that are necessary, you know. And then when you flip over to 1 Corinthians 12 in the context of the body and of every person in the body using their gifts together so that the body is all members of the body and all of their gifts and abilities are all honored properly. The Apostle Paul writes this, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. So there's divisions in the body, it's it's schism, it's schism. Now there's two kinds of schism, and I want to try to bring some clarity to this that I didn't get to last week, but there's two kinds of schism. The first is dividing by making the most important truths less important. That's the first kind. Dividing by making the most important truths less important. That looks like unity. It looks like we ditched the truth in order to just be more welcoming. That's, that, that looks like unity. Okay? The second kind of schism is dividing by making less important truths equal to the most important truths. So There's two ways this happens. One goes from most important and makes them less important. One takes less important and makes them equal with the most important. Both of those cause schism in the body. So um, what do I mean by dividing? I mean that you know, we can't live together in peace within our church family. And usually what that means is someone would have to leave the church, either because our church decided to make a most important truth less important or a less important truth equal to most important. Some would have to leave our fellowship because of the sin of schism. I mean dividing when we shouldn't be. Both kinds of schism. Most important, less important, less important, most important. Both kinds have real two issues. They really have two issues. They're ethical and moral issues about our character and our sins. And then there are doctrinal issues. Okay. And so ethical, moral, the moral issues, this is just relating to the commands of God for how we live our life. And then the doctrinal issues are the relating to the truth of God for what we're to believe. And so let's take them one at a time, see if we can bring some clarity to this um, so that we can be guarded against the sin of schism and actually be the body that. Above all these things put on love that binds everything together in perfect harmony. You do not want to live your life guilty of the sin of schism and the harm it brings to Jesus' bride. You want to be growing in the kind of love that actually builds up into harmony where truth and love go together. So, I'm committing the sin of schism when I am first dividing by making the most important truths less important. Okay, so um, I'm not going to give any comprehensive lists. What I'm trying to do is give you a flavor for what this looks like so you can think. Because you have to think. You have to think about this. About how to guard yourself from schism and how to put on love. What things are at what weight of importance all right, so, from an ethical moral this 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 really revolves around accepting unrepentance that's really what this revolves around. we're talking about making the most important truths less important from a moral perspective um it's it's It usually means we just remove any effort of repentance from the church and we just accept anything okay and so what this might look like is um, in a church setting if if Church discipline and excommunication do not exist because the church's witness to who Christ is is less important than that we are a welcoming church to anything and everything whatsoever. And we just love everybody. If, those, if something like church discipline doesn't exist because we don't care about God's grace rescuing people and we don't care about people turning from their sin, and we don't care about helping them get free from the snares that so easily entangle them so that they can enjoy the blessing of Christ. If, right, that is, that's taking um, most important truths from a moral perspective and making them less important. We don't believe in church discipline. That's a scenario where if a church rejects that, you actually would have to divide You have to understand this. In this list, when I say these, you have to understand, you're not the person in a case like that, if I just told you, you know, if I just came up here once and was like, you know, we're never going to do any kind of church discipline whatsoever. We don't really care about speaking the truth in love. We don't care about exhorting one another, you know, day after day after day kind of thing. Um, and uh, then you're like, wait, what's going on with Patrick, Pastor Josh? Like, yeah, it's just, we're just not doing that anymore. Well, once you see that this is actually our commitment, if you, you, well, you should try to get me fired first. That's what you should do. Then, uh, assuming that all that you, you should be patient with that, you know, for the other leaders to do their, you know, to deal with it, and then, um, and then you should leave if the rest of the leaders go the same route. Right? Here's what I want you to understand. In that case. I'm the one guilty of schism. Because I'm the one who is saying that holiness in Christ's church is not that important. You see, I'm the one guilty of schism. I'm dividing from brothers and sisters by that commitment. So if you had to leave the church over that, you're not being divisive. I'm the one guilty of schism. It's really important that you see that. Or someone, unre- you know, if we, if we just fill the church with unregenerate church members, we ask them for their testimony and they say, you know what, I was baptized when I was seven, you know. Um, I haven't been that bad of a person. And, you know, I haven't killed anybody. And that's the best testimony they've got. Right. That person isn't ready for church membership. That person is not a Christian yet. We would minister to them and evangelize them and share, do a Bible study with them and long for them to come to know that you do not know Christ uh, and you are not saved based on the works of righteousness you have done or the, whatever particular sins you think you have neglected. Right. Not by works of righteousness. Has anyone come to Christ? which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us, Titus chapter 3. So, but, you know, that's, that does exclude, you have to like kind of say no to somebody and then help them along, but no, we kind of, we get rid of that because we just are going to fill the church with whoever. Right, well, making our churches witness to Christ by having Christians who are members of the church. Less important because we just want to fill seats with people and boast about how loving we are. That's the most to less important. Or how about this? Women are pastors and elders in the church. Taking something as important as men leading and men being the heads of their families and men leading, being fathers, men being fathers in Christ church and saying, that's just not, not that important. Anybody can do that. When a church becomes committed to these things, it's guilty of schism. Or, um, we're good with pastors who are gay Christians, as long as they're celibate just gay? They're guilty. That's, that's schism. Or just as simple as this. Homosexuality isn't sinful. It's not worthy of God's wrath. To deny the Scripture, right? You know, a lot of these issues, a lot of the way this happens is whatever the issues of the day are the church collapses on them and doesn't actually hold the scripture anymore and becomes more welcoming. You know. Unfortunately, if you actually see eternity, it becomes more welcoming to the gates of hell, and that should concern us. Or our church, is, um, our church just really believes men and women are equal in every single way whatsoever. There's really no distinction. Church is androgynous. Right? This only exists because of feminism. you understand. This only exists in the church because of the pressure of feminism over the last hundred years, you know. And there is no such thing as egalitarian. All egalitarian means is mother rule. I mean, you try to make everything equal in every single way in your marriage, what you have is lawlessness and no authority and order whatsoever. So you do the same thing in the church. If you have no, if there is no distinction between men and women in the church, right, and a church becomes committed to this, they're guilty of schism. Because they're taking something as basic and as important as our, sexuality and the responsibility God giving to it and turning it on its head and the way it points to who Christ is and what he's done for his church. And they're just undercutting all of it. And so its threat to the gospel is imminent when this happens. And so they're guilty of schism for taking really important truths from there. I'm only talking from a moral perspective right now. Really important truths in scripture that what they do is they will undercut what we believe the truth to speak of doctrinally about who Christ is. So the big picture is the more dangerous the ethical moral issue is to our doctrinal issue, the bigger deal the the church should make of it. And when the church doesn't make a big deal of it and doesn't care about it and doesn't teach and doesn't emphasize it, they're guilty of schism. They are dividing from God's truth in a way that's actually going to lead them away from the gospel. It doesn't mean that by their commitment right now today, they're not Christians. But I'll tell you, it's not going to be long before they're not. Even if it takes a generation. Ethical, moral, doctrinal. This is clearer to you, I think. The Trinity. If we don't have the Trinity, we don't have Christianity. So rejecting the Trinity is schism. Rejecting the deity of Christ is schism. Rejecting the authority, inerrancy, inspiration, sufficiency of Scripture, that is schism. These major doctrinal convictions. I would say rejecting federal headship. That Adam is humanity's representative in the fall and sin is uh, original to the fall and bound up with all of us sins. If you reject original sin, you're ultimately rejecting not just the first Adam, but the last Adam, who's our representative, who saves us from it. No, the virgin birth, substitutionary atonement, right? Christ in my place as my substitute, and Him being the only way that I could be reconciled to God. The resurrection of Christ, the return of Christ, all of these major doctrines of the Christian life When a church rejects those, it's guilty of schism. Or when any particular person decides to reject them, within the church, it's guilty of schism. Okay, there's a sample of taking the most important and making it less important. Um, Dividing by making less important truths the most important. Doctrinally, things like how old is the earth, the nature of spiritual gifts exactly, Um, eschatology, women deacons or not, or just bigger picture, how a church does its governance. Um, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Modes of baptism, I would say, uh, even. These are not essential truths to the gospel, um, but many of them, or what we do is we take them and we make less important truths the equivalent to the most important. You know, like the age of the earth is now equivalent to substitutionary atonement and importance, and we must divide over it. Or um, the fact that we, if, if someone doesn't hold to a pre-trib rapture, that's as important as understanding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we must divide over it, this person would say. We can't live together and see these things a little bit differently. Ethically, it could be, um, you know, thing, things like if pictures of Jesus will be in the children's ministry curriculum, curriculum or not. It could be all forms of Christian liberty issues. Parenting choices. Choices about alcohol. Choices about tobacco. Choices about, you know, dancing. Cho- dietary choices. Your crunchiness or lack of crunchiness. There, did I just deal with an elephant in the room? All right, good. Or it could be um, making less important truths the most important truth, tithing but neglecting love. It could be anything. Any particular command that you're going to ride your high horse about, and then you're going to think, well, they're not doing this one thing doesn't matter how much harm you're doing to everybody. They're just not doing whatever your one thing that you think has to be done is. Making speaking in tongues the mark of salvation. Singing only the psalms in worship with no instruments. These are actually raising to a level of importance things that are less important and dividing brothers and sisters over them. They're schism. Church has people that dance in it. You hear. I mean, I dance. Well. (laughs) So what do I want for you? And let me give you some pastoral thoughts to kind of close this down. What I want for you is to have love in your heart for Christ's brethren. I want you to have love in your heart for Christ's brethren. I want you to have faith in God and His ways. I don't want you always thinking that patience or forbearance with someone's sins and temptations or with their doctrinal error or just disagreement is the same as compromising truth. Let me say that again. I don't want you always thinking that patience or forbearance with someone's sins and temptations or with their doctrinal error or merely just with a disagreement that they're committed to is the same as compromising God's truth in such a way that everything has to be divided over. Now look, we live in an evil day. We live in an evil day. It's hard to find, increasingly hard to find churches that are committed to the truth. And I'll just tell you, we need to be a place that on any particular that's of non-importance, that we actually feel a bit free about that with one another. There should be a level of freedom about that with one another. I'm not changing anything I say up here. I'm not changing any of our church's doctrine or teaching. I'm just saying we live in an evil day And not everybody's going to agree on everything, but if they can be confident that they're at a place that's committed to the truth and to the historical doctrine of the Christian faith, that's a person we can love on. And guess what? They can love on us, even if we aren't going to change everything about them. We live in an evil day. You have to remember that. And here's the point. If we can agree with someone who disagrees about, I don't know, whatever this or that thing is, but they're committed to understanding a lot of what I just said about some of the issues of our day. You know, they're against the bloodshed of infants. You know, and they're um, they understand then and want us to fight the good fight of faith in reforming the church, not the culture as much yet, but the church on issues of sexuality. And we can have unity there, though we have. Some disagreement on some other lesser issues today? I'm all for that. I am all for that. Here's a big principle. The less clarity the Bible gives on a subject, the more charity we can have with one another. The less clarity the Bible gives on a subject, the more charity we can have with one another within this church family. And I'll tell you, we're as committed ever to sound doctrine. You know, And if you wonder about that, you should go back and listen to the whole First Timothy series. You should listen to the whole thing again. And some of you may not even been here to hear that, but you should ask Esteban for all of those messages and see if... And, and you should start listening to them. That has nothing to do with this. The doctrine... That we're always going to preach sound doctrine. By God's grace, the doctrine solidified in the Protestant Reformation and the creeds and confessions that followed. We believe what Christians have always believed, and we're going to keep teaching what we believe Christians have always believed. So, our church's leaders will have unity on a breadth of doctrinal issues, our elders will have unity on a breadth of doctrinal issues. Relating to the creeds and confessions. But we could have men who are elders who disagree about the end times a little bit. Working together. We could have men who are elders who have a little different view on the spiritual gifts or some other disagreement between one another on some issue of lesser significance. And then I'll just try to convince them why they're wrong. Remember, the Christian life is not merely the ability to hold all of your principles and pride yourself on your commitment to the truth. You can actually harm people by holding all of your principles and forcing that they just come into agreement with all of your principles. You can actually harm people like that. The Pharisees were very good at that. But Jesus spoke of the weightier matters of the law. The weightier matters of the law. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's very easy to be a Pharisee. It's also very easy to be licentious on the other side of the coin, where nothing matters anymore. I just want to say a word to a lot of our young men who are growing in their doctrine or understanding. How do you form your doctrine? A lot of issues that lead to schism happen because you form your doctrine completely in disobedience to God. And you think you're actually forming your doctrine in obedience to God. But what you're doing is you're reading all your books in private. You're watching all your YouTube videos of whoever your favorite super apostle of the day is your doctrine isn't being wrestled through in the community of the church. You're forming your doctrine without oversight. You're forming your doctrine without accountability. There's no conversation that's happening to engage your doctrinal thinking. Do you realize, all of you have to realize how many thousands of hours I have spent wrestling down Christian doctrine. Thousands of hours, both in reading and Thousands of hours, literally, in conversation. In conversation. Speaking the truth in love to one another. Thousands of hours. In community. In the life of Christ's church. So the thought that you would somehow be able to do that well on your own, sitting on your armchair, reading a book, is just scary to me. Your doctrine forms in the life of the church. So I'm so proud of the men who come, you know, we had cars stuck in the driveway yesterday morning, shoveling them out in the dark, you know, and uh, to come and, and wrestle through some serious doctrinal issues. And to do it in conversation and to have a little bit of debate about it, to have some disagreement about it. Now, there's another side of this coin, too, that I want to just give, make sure the thought is in there, because someone here will take what I've said and went, and, and you will become, it will be easy for you to disagree with the church, you know, kind of your rebellious heart will go, well, I'm just walking away from this or that sermon, I just disagree, and you could be right, I could have said something wrong, I could need corrected about something, um, but oftentimes what I'm talking about is, I, is, is, a, is a quick to disagree without, because you're wise in your own eyes. And that is not going to help you when we're trying to build unity that speaks the truth in love and ultimately leads to something that binds together in perfect harmony doesn't mean you can't disagree. That's not what I'm saying. I've argued, I'm arguing for more freedom in the life of our church. <laughs> that's, my, that's really the whole point of this whole sermon series. But I kind of have to guard the other side of the coin a little bit, too, you know. But being quickly disagreeable is not a good thing for you, especially for you who are younger. It's usually born of being wise in your own eyes and proud. Because you don't have any sense about how much those older than you have had to work through, to think through, to wrestle through what they know and understand about both truth and life. There's no way for you to actually calculate that in your mind. (laughs) And so you shouldn't be quickly disagreeable. That's not going to be good for you. In fact, it could be schismatic. And lastly, I just want to say, we aren't saying that everyone who commits schism isn't a Christian. Even, (laughs) You know? We're not even saying that. We aren't saying that you can't be a Christian um, at a church committing these these errors specifically. But we are saying that you could be committing schism and on very dangerous ground and you could be actually undercutting the gospel, even the gospel that you personally claim to believe, and you could be on very dangerous ground. And even if you are messed up and committing some level of schism, maybe you'll cling to Christ, but I guarantee you'll start to see the fruit in the life of your children. And what you start to sow as a seed will grow into a rotten fruit tree. And this is the same with the church. When it starts to go down roads of schism from Orthodox Christian doctrine, it's not that it's not, it's maybe today that there's nothing about it that's Christian that's left, but oh my goodness. Does no one care about 40 years from now as if this trajectory, the principle that they have now committed themselves to that is schismatic from historical Christian Orthodox doctrine, does no one care that this actually is going to lead the whole church and its generations beyond it away from Christ? And then this, we can't fix it all. We can't fix it all. You can't fix all about each other. Can't fix it all. Doesn't mean there's not a lot that God can't help us grow into maturity about, but you can't fix it all.